Hello, I'm Bridget. And I'm Caroline. You are listening to Hearth, Home, and Homicide, a family production about family murders. My daughter Caroline and I narrate each story. Son and brother Andy is our producer. As Caroline and I talk about each family murder, we keep sensitivity for victims and their families in top of mind. Our podcasts do include violence and trauma. Listener discretion is advised. So, hey, Caroline, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm kind of getting excited about fall. Me too. It's it's a football season here in the Darrow house, so we're busy, busy, busy Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. But actually, we're busy Monday through Sunday. But you know, it's a good time. It's the shifting of the seasons. It's now you have a football player in your in your brood, and I am so proud of Luke. And uh, he never was pressured to play football. And one day he woke up and said, "I want to play football." And so I must say, it has. It's been a very surprising pleasure to watch him get into this. It's just been really a surprising, like, really nice thing to kind of, I don't know, I'm beaming a little bit, but it's it's been so nice. Go Luke, yeah. go Bearcats. <laughs> I can't wait to see him next Saturday when he plays down here in my neck of the woods and I'll come, I'll come to the game. Anyway, um... Today's story is uh, a little tilted on the notion of who done it, uh, because the dead man's son would go on twi- trial twice for murder, and once he was found guilty the first time, and the second time he was found not guilty, and so he is a free man. And at the end of the story, we'll see how our listeners feel about who did this. I have my suspicions. Anyway, so uh, we're going to be going to Canada today. Uh, you know, many people believe that the son did do it because the family dynamics in our in our story today are so toxic. Uh, there's certainly a lot to the of talk about. Um, the son must have done it because he was just so you know the whole family's dysfunctional and blah 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 blah. But let's let's dive in and see, you know, is that true? We're going to go to the province of New Brunswick, Canada, for our family story of a beer dynasty gone murderously wrong. New Brunswick has both English and French as official languages. That's hilarious. That Ooh, tells me that they are nice people who can't make a final decision. <laughs> we are. They're their own thing. They're a meshing of the, the two... Great powers that came. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So New Brunswick is like the meshers of, of Canada. <laughs> the province borders the state of Maine to its south, and so my brother, who lived in Maine, he he would often go to uh, this part of the the planet and um, bird watch and uh, and look at the plants and all that and write about it. So uh, it's a beautiful place uh, that he uh, talked about a lot. More particularly, we're, the town we're in today is called St. John, and St. John is an important seaport city of the Atlantic. This entire area of Canada, Caroline, is sometimes called the Maritimes, 
or the Atlantic Maritimes. That sounds so, you know, Victorian. It's a vital asset to Canada, Canada and it is very picturesque. When I say picturesque, I'm talking about quaint, uphill, kind of winding streets, 19th century maritime architecture, uh, red brick buildings, white trim, flags out, tall spires, the works. I mean, this is a picturesque town, St. John is, and it has very, very lush gardens and so forth and so on. So just imagine this twinkly place, and now we're going to sully it all up. So the family we're looking at is the Oland family, a historically important name in these parts. If you're a beer drinker, you may be familiar with Moosehead Beer. And it was the Olin family that started it in 1867. Whoa. Wow. That's impressive. Uh, to be, yeah, you know, you're going from a world that was dark-ish and, and very unregulated oh, yeah. for the most part, and now highly regulated, something that you're going to imbibe, and they have survived and thrived. Moosehead Breweries Limited is Canada's oldest independent brewery located right there in St. John. In 1981, somebody I dearly love was born that year. It was me. Richard (laughs) Oland. (laughs) Richard Oland was vice president of Moosehead Brewery. So Richard Oland, president of Moosehead Brewery. He and his brother, Derek, were vying for control of Moosehead. Richard was bright and capable, and he also had a different, forceful, interpersonal style. His father, P.W. Olin, chose Derek to succeed him as president, and that really upset Richard. Richard was the oldest, so he always thought it's going to be me. Well, yeah, there's got to be a story there, right? Because that's the traditional route that I think all families would have taken, at least in the North American continent. I mean, I know that Canada would not have been that far off from those social mores. So, That's right. Exactly. Uh, Richard reacted by this, his mind, betrayal by leaving Moosehead and starting his own trucking company and also a financial and investment firm that he called Far End Corporation Investment Firm. So he's going in a new direction. Now, he's still associated with Moosehead Brewery, but not running it, not working there, not, you know, not being in the family. But, you know, you can't escape your membership in that family, I wouldn't think. He's a shareholder now, and so, but then he's going to go do this other independent thing? Probably. well, here we're going to find out that it's always death that brings the money in these in these storied families. Yeah. Uh, P.W., the the father who was running it, and and you know the chief person, he died in 1996. So now this is 15 years after that split, where you know the brother Richard is pissed off and Derek becomes the king, and you know, oh my God. Uh, <laughs> He split his shares in Moosehead this way. 53% will go to Derek. 33% will go to Dick. And 14% went to the sister, Jane, meaning Derek and Richard's sister. Mm. 
So he did not he did not split his wealth in three ways evenly. These he, are odd it was, percentages too. Fifty three percent, thirty three. Yeah. Is that a an attempt at a sort of you know differential in thirds? I mean, he's giving an, a percentage of a third to Derek, a percentage of a third to Dick, and then a percentage of a third to the seemingly I, for their yeah, efforts. I, I know. I don't. I have no <laughs> idea what was going on in his mind, but I'm sure he realized that when he's after he's dead, there's going to be you know, chicken feathers everywhere, just chaos in the barnyard of this family that is just going to be chaos. Bear in mind that this, at this time, you know, Dick had become a millionaire many times over through his own success as a trucking company owner and investment business owner and various ventures that always went his way. He, he had the Midas touch. Now, some of that is the residuals of being the, from an Oland. Right. Yeah the old family money gets you kind of in the door. Yeah, you would think he would just live and let live, but oh, no, 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 that didn't stop him from suing his brother Derek over and over and over again for a larger share of Moosehead. Dick made Derek's life as head of Moosehead a torment, a torment, to say the least. In spite of being a perfect example of an a-hole on steroids, (laughs) Uh, Dick Olin was having a good time in 2011 at the age of 69. I'm calling him Dick now. Apparently, we're buddies. You know, we start out Richard now. Your true feelings maybe are coming out there. It's in the Insta switch from Richard to Dick. (laughs) This Dick, but I'm not saying that. Dick Olin was having a good, everybody called him Dick, probably for a good reason. He was having a good time at the age of 69. He was a world champion sailor. He had won a great deal of renown on that front. He loved to fish, and he had the overall great life of a man of his economic stature. And I want, you know, props to him. He made that money. This is not Moosehead money. This is his money. Living in the exclusive community of Rothesay in St. John. He had blue water views out of every window, so to speak, Caroline. I mean, you know, he had, he's king of, of St. John. So why wouldn't he live and let live? I mean, gosh, you did win, sir. What do you need Moosehead for anymore? That is kind of sad that he had all this greatness that he really did build when he already had come from this kind of greatness, but he's mad. But he goes out and he does it again. You know, why get caught up in your own rage at that point? Just enjoy. That's the real revenge is enjoying your life. Living well is the best revenge. You know, I think this is why the family's kind of known in this area as being very dysfunctional. Because, you know, I can see where, you know, Dick, Richard, whatever you want to call him, him being an a-hole, he's picking on Derek. Derek is not the one who made the decision to make Derek the president of Moosehead. That was his father, P.W.'s idea. Uh, Now, maybe Derek was, you know, uh, uh, a sinister person, but I don't get that from all the reading I've done that he was not. He was beat so far down by the way that Dick was treating him that that's what people talked about. Oh, that makes me really, really sad because it's, you're right. He's, he's the least in control of that choice and that life of anybody. Derek yeah. was just doing what he was told. That's why I think there's a story there. Something there's happened. a story there. And Derek was doing things that PW said, that's the future of my company. And 
you know, Dick's over here just doing something he didn't think was the future of the company. And that's typically how company owners are divvying up their business to their young ones. Who's going to carry on my legacy? So there has to be, I'm just interested in what happened there. It's too bad. Well, we'll probably never know, but it just does sort of cast a pall over ever being so rich that your life is designated to you from the very beginning. And then for some reason, it doesn't turn out. And here you've sacrificed your entire identity and individuality toward this, you know, our family has a place in the community and here's your role in that place and that role. I mean, that reminds me of Prince Harry. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Locked into something you never even signed up for. Yeah, just trying so hard to find your own individuality. Okay, Dick, you found your individuality, you made tons of money, shut the hell up. But that's not what happened. So uh, then on the morning of July 7th, 2001, on a picturesque and gorgeous maritime street in St. John, where all the best people shop, Dick Olin's loyal assistant of 30 years, so he couldn't have been all that bad if he's got people working for him that have been working for him for 30 years. Anyway, Maureen Adamson is her name. She showed up for work. Maureen found the front door wasn't completely closed. Well, that's weird, she thought. Maureen Adamson made her way upstairs to the offices of Dick's flagship business, Far End Corporation where, of course, there's another door that enters the offices of the business itself. And when she opened that door, she remembers being hit with a terribly, terrifically vile smell. Uh Uh-oh. Caroline, what would I do? (laughs) What would I do? I mean, we know what the smell of death is like, okay? And we've smelled dead animals, and we know what the smell of death is like. But... Would I think blood and death if I smelled it in my office? Oh, yeah, probably not. I I don't know. I mean, I would think that's the oddest sour milk I've ever smelled. (laughs) Yeah, your your brain is going to try to frame it for you in a logical way. Yeah. And another part of you, I think we call that the tingly sense. The tingly sense is saying run, don't walk. But not her. She opened another door. This time, the one to her boss, Dick Olin's office, and she saw, well, she saw so much blood and brain matter and a couple of trousered legs poking out from behind the furniture, she finally recoiled and called the police. Okay. Uh, You know, so she's going back into where she normally sits and she's calling police, but she's staying in that building? Um. That's more than I've got in the guts department. Well, and it's before cell phones, right? So, I mean, she didn't, she she may not have had a choice. She may have felt like, you know. Yeah. (laughs) The shock surrounding Dick Olin's death only deepened and widened as details of the slaying leaked out to this little perfect port city of the Maritimes of Canada. The 69-year-old businessman had been hit on the head no fewer than 40 times by a blunt weapon, uh, a hammer with a crosshatch pattern on the business end, to be exact. Spatters and spews of blood were found up to 2.75 meters, which, as I looked it up, is nine feet in America. 
So splatters and spews of blood up to nine feet away from his body. Jesus. It was a bloody, gruesome crime scene with head guts all over the place and on the desk and on the walls and on the ceiling, on papers, on chairs. Poor Dick had a significant blob of his brains coming out his back. He had covering his back. It didn't come out of his back. His brains flew out and went onto his back and he was found face down. So uh, sorry about the gore, but uh, that's how dramatic it was. The only thing missing from the scene was his cell phone. The cell phone was taken, but not his Rolex. So they did have cell phones, Caroline. They did. When we look back to 2001, that just, that to me, that sounds like a cave. But no, I guess they did. We We had the little fifth phones. Remember, we were trying to make them as tiny as possible. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a phone back then. I don't know when I got it, but it was called the Blackberry. Do you remember Blackberries? Yes. That's that's a thing, a very historic pop culture thing that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, I wonder if that's why my wrists and fingers hurt so bad because I was carrying around that that, you know, Blackberry yeah. all that time. You couldn't put it in your pocket and, you know, get near water, you'd drown. So right. anyway, <laughs> the the cell phone was taken but not his Rolex and not his wallet. Hmm. Everyone associated with the police department all the way up to top cop police chief Bill Reed went to visit the crime scene. So, uh-oh, they're stomping around through, you know, everything. They don't have any actual business being there. People oh, just no. came by like it's a new tourist attraction. Let's put some, you know, uh, spray on some lamination to the, all this blood and gut. So we, this will last forever. I mean, they're really making a tourist tour out of this oh, place. No. And and when I say that, I am not exaggerating, Caroline. Most of them later admitted that they were just curious. They oh. were picking. They were picking things up. These are cops. That's right. Okay, they but they just don't know how to act in an actual crime. Yeah. Picking things up. They were not wearing gloves. They were traipsing across evidence markers laid upon the floor with no footwear protection. It even came to the public's attention that cops had used the bathroom in Dick's office for two days before ever even looking for any forensic evidence in there. Oh, Never no. Using, yeah, I know, I know. You know, Columbo would walk into this scene, take one look, and just walk out. <laughs> That's my view of what how horrible this would be. Never using gloves. They had no protection, such as don't anyone use the restroom because we haven't processed it yet. Well, that's you know, kind part- of... Yeah, that's the part that's most shocking to me because I think some basics. I mean, 2001, you are talking about a, the, it's, you know, the influx of DNA is not new, but it's not, or it's not old, but it's not, you know, down yet. I mean, it's still very young. And I know that a lot was happening with investigative sciences and forensics and all the things. But when has it ever been okay to use any of the facilities within a crime scene, period? If that's a kitchen toaster, if it's a bathroom. <laughs> You just, this is now, like you said, a sort of like snapshot, nothing gets touched or moved. Snapshot. Now we all have to get in there with purpose to get something. Otherwise we don't go in there. Like, so it is kind of frustrating that they're just like, eh, I got to take a leak or whatever it is that they're doing. <laughs> yeah. I know. I mean, you know, 
I have to ask a rhetorical question here. Why is it that law enforcement fails to call for help when something happens on their patch that is obviously more than they can handle properly? What is that? That happened with the Long Island serial killer. Did and all those victims, yes, the the FBI came in to try to help that police uh, chief all those years ago, and they were told, we don't need the FBI. We're going to solve this ourselves. No, they did not. Oh, see that, you know, I think some of that is that like machismo or the bravado, yeah. right? Territorialism. Of a, of a people or of a culture of a bit, you know, whatever. All police stations are different, I think, culturally. You all figure oh, sure. out how you're going to do that within your yeah. community. Some would welcome the help, even just the, you know, in America, be the state. Bring in the State Bureau of Investigation, wherever you're at. For us, it'd oh, be yeah. the, the Washington State Bureau of Investigation. Or bring in the FBI. Here in the county, we already we already do that in the county we're in. We have a consortium of uh, agencies already set up. They respond to half. We had a shooting here at a school in, in Marysville. That's the agency that responds. It has multiple jurisdictions within it. They know who the lead jurisdiction will always be. They know who their PIO. It's it's a really kind of, it makes me feel better on a law enforcement front that those things aren't going to bungle the investigation later. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I do think that this was 20, 2001 um, and you would think by then there'd be some enlightenment toward what you're talking about. In St. John, I just wonder if they even trained their cops, law enforcement people, if they even trained them. What is being taught in the academy that they went to? And so maybe they just really are hapless puppies running around, you know, um, using their, you know, senses to not so much solve this case, but just take it all in. Yeah. It probably you know, took them a few think, days to realize, you know, we probably shouldn't have done that. Well, and I, you know, I, I do want to, I feel badly because I'm sure this is a crime that they never have seen before and never thought that they would ever see, you know? No, I know. So, it's like a circus coming to town right. for them. The Olins were one of New, Bruns New Brunswick's most respected, most famous, most generous benefactors and philanthropic community old money families, Caroline. Dick Olin with an estate worth around $35 million in 2001. Wow. Um, and that's Canadian. So probably here it would have been about $50 million, $60 million, was a scion of the Moosehead Brewery's empire. Even though he wasn't running it, he was still seen as, you know, the mega guy. They lived in the most exclusive area of New Brunswick called Rothsay, as I said before. So let's just have a contamination party. Um, I wonder, did they just put up crime scene tape without having any wisdom about, you know, the tape's actual function? I don't know, but that's where, where we're at right this minute. I really don't want to bash police and crime scene investigators in general because they usually don't deserve it. But in this case, in St. John, New Brunswick, Canada that day, the whole scene investigation left a lot of to be desired as far as the best practices or even garden variety police protocols. And, you know, this is going to seriously stymie the conviction of the Dennis Olin as the killer of the father. Now, that's a new name, Dennis, Dennis being the son 
of Dick uh, Oland, and he was a suspect from the get-go. Dick Olin and his wife of almost 50 years, 50 years, Caroline. Isn't that sweet? You would think it would be sweet. Her name is, I mean, you know, I don't care what your, what your history is of fights when you're newlyweds and struggles when you're, you know, 20 years in and, and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But by the time you've hit 50 there, I would think that there'd be some mellow in there somewhere. Oh, you, you mellowed some, some real ability to tune the other out. Oh, I, I bet. <laughs> That's how you Look make the it other way. <laughs> give him a check. You know, Dick Olin, you know, and his wife, Connie Olin had been married 50 years. They had one son. We've already met him a little bit, Dennis, and they had two daughters. Their son's name is Dennis, of course. And in Dennis's old own words, uh, being of course, uh, you know, seen as the killer, a small town police force decided that I killed my father. Dennis Olin is the rich kid from Rothesay, Silver Spoon, spoiled. He must have done it. Mm. That is how he felt. And I kind of feel that way too. Yeah. I sort did, of. Yeah. And here, but here are some of the reasons, the tangible, you know, evidentiary reasons that people thought this about Dennis. He owed his dad a lot of money, number one. He implied his relationship with his father had been a difficult one. As they reasoned based on the scene of the crime, the murder had been very personal. So they did pick that up. The police chief declared early in the press conference, after the press conference, this was no robbery. This was not random. Dick Olin knew his killer. So that's a lot for that police chief to be declaring, given his lack of management of the crime scene, but he did, and um, and there you go. In his theory, if his theory was right, Dennis had the motive, Dennis had the opportunity. So what they did on the day that the murder occurred and that sightseeing tour began of the crime scene, they brought Dennis. Olin into the police office feeling like they could drag a confession out of him. I mean, that day, the day that Maureen found the body, they did that that day. Oh, wow. That's super quick. <laughs> yeah. A, a quick peek into Dennis's interrogation. Uh, here you go. Dennis is a somewhat small statured, sweet faced man with short salt-and-pepper midlife hair, a mild countenance, known as low-key and unassuming to everyone in St. John. When an interrogating officer asked Dennis if he was the one who killed his father, Dennis responded with an easy, no. I mean, you know, did you kill your father? My God, I can't even believe you asked me that. That's what I would say. Oh, See, I would go d- with Derek or uh, Dennis's response and say no, because I would be terrified too. And so for me, it's a bit of a, I don't know what you want from me and I don't know what you don't want from me. So I'm going to give you just the facts because like, I'm scared. <laughs> so yeah. I okay. Yeah. And he from. was, he was known as mild mannered, but also you're, I agree with you that a lot of people would just say oh, no. Yeah. 
or just no. There's a little bit of a freeze. So it's not that you don't want to be truthful. It's that you don't understand what it is this person wants from you. So the truth could still be scary for you. It could still hurt you. (laughs) They could still use it against you. I don't know. That's just my thinking. Yes. Uh, You know, uh, you're absolutely right. Because in truth, based on things he said later, by this point that day, Dennis Olin was terrified. The cold truth had become clear to him. The police believed he was a murderer. Worse to be a murderer. Worse, worse, the murderer of his father. He had been to see his father the evening before. That's part of the problem. Making him the last known person to see his father alive. For Dick Olin, uh, you know, for he never came home that night. His wife, Connie, thought he was staying in town for business reasons. She didn't know what everybody else knew, Caroline, that Dick had an eight-year love affair going on with a local real estate agent. And, um, you know, she, Connie, was not thinking of that. She She was thinking he was just working. And she, she certainly wasn't that night wondering, I, where, I wonder where my husband is. I wonder if he's at the office getting his brains bashed out. She thought he was out there making a fortune as usual, pissing somebody off as usual, or sailing or fishing, or maybe napping in his office. So that pretty much sums up what she thinks, the, what the pattern of their life is. Yeah. You know, it's not unusual for him not to come home. Well, and I mean, I think it's important to emphasize, we know one of his first, you know, personality traits is a-hole. This guy's an a-hole. So in order to stay married to an a-hole for 50 years, yeah, you got to find your own bliss. (laughs) Right. Right. Not that either one of us know. No, 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 no. But I mean, no, 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 no. I do feel badly an eight-year affair. You you weren't married anymore. Sorry. That everybody I mean, but you knows about, Caroline. I mean, did, did they really though? Like, is is Connie one of those people who just was like, I'm going to pretend to be the biggest idiot in the room because it's just easier than being the most like disrespected in the room? I don't know. that. What a horrible situation. And I'm really emphasizing the a-hole part of Dick's personality. <laughs> well, he's dead, <laughs> so bad. he can't hurt us. Anyway, <laughs> Connie's life was about to change forever, though, especially when police zeroed in on her only and genuinely loved, beloved, he was beloved, uh, Dennis. You know, Dennis was kind of a mama's boy. Yeah. Or Connie was kind of a baby boy, you know, like protector. A, a doter. A doter. <laughs> a doter. Good word, doter. I'm a doter. doter. That's what <laughs> I dote all I'm a doter. I'm a doter now of grandchildren. Yeah. So yeah, I've got I've got doter in me. <laughs> uh, Dennis, a forty-seven-year-old businessman himself, had visited his father the evening before the murder was discovered. In fact, he was the last known visitor to Dick's office before he was murdered. The medical examiner put his time of death between approximately six and eight thirty the evening before Maureen found his body. At the police station, Dennis was told that his father's body had been found in his office, but there were no further detail. Dennis found out from his mother that his father was dead, 
And Connie, Dennis's mother and Dick's wife of nearly 50 years, found out about the death from a mutual friend who called and told Connie the police were swarming Dick's office. And that friend was a woman by the name of Diana Sedlasek. Diana was married, and she and her husband used to socialize with Dick and Connie. Connie didn't know it, but Diana was Dick's lover. Oh, I hate these people. <laughs> I just hate these people. <laughs> like these are this is a horrible way to interact with other human beings, I think. That's just like, well, that's so creepy that she would call Connie it, knowing that I'm Connie saying. does not know that she she would I get I can't oh with God. this level of deceit and destruction of other human beings. I mean, I, I just, I've, I don't disregard someone to that level. So it's very confusing to hear people being disregarded. Like, Connie, whoa, whoa. Like, none of these people cared about you. Whoa. <laughs> I just, it's sad and it's frustrating. It's horrible. That way. And, and, you know, Dennis and his sisters knew that Diana was Dick's lover. Uncle Derek, remember Uncle Derek? Yeah. Who was tormented by... Dick, the a-hole, yeah. uh, in lawsuits for years. Uh, Uncle Derek and his kids knew it, but Connie did not know it. Or if it's I'm, what you think, I'm she knew mad it, but she... for Connie. That's why I think Connie did know, and she chose the route of pure stupidity over pure disrespect. Neither one feels good. I mean, right? But at least with one, you can claim a absolution. Well, at least Dennis... Dennis thought his mother did not know about Diana, and 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 she has said as much that she did not know. She told others that her husband Dick changed significantly after he lost the feud with his brother. So this is 1981. Dick changed. So maybe he was not a creep before. Uh, not right. creepy. He wasn't creepy. He was he was a philanthropist. He was a lot of good things. He was smart. He made a lot of money for his family, but. You know, he changed, according to Connie, after he lost the feud with his brother. And I take that to mean they might have been feuding over the uh, maybe Derek and and um, Dick were trying to talk the father into leave it to me. No, leave it to me. No, leave it to me. No, leave it to right. me. Maybe there know. was that feud. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but Dick even went to college and his degree was in brewery science and Derek didn't have brewery science degree. Daddy, give it to me. Right. Uh, he made it clear that he wanted to run the business when his father retired. It's not like he was just taking it for granted. So that really hurt him, according maybe, to Connie. But maybe his dad saw this side of him. Maybe his dad saw that, no, you're way too much of a bulldozer of other humans. Well, he did know that. Yeah. He did I mean, know that. So maybe that's why he chose Derek needs to, you know, because in order to stay a company within a community since 1867, part of that must be some public relations stuff that isn't always to your benefit, right? Right. So, I mean, maybe he just could see, Dick, you're going to run this thing into the ground because you're an a-hole. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when Dick's brother Derek was selected as president instead of Dick, Connie said after that happened, Dick became brutal and cruel at home to her and to the children, and his favorite target was Dennis. Now, that makes me wonder, is Dennis a lot like Derek? Yeah. Derek is kinder to people, right. and that's what got him the presidency. 
Uh, whereas Dick is not kind to people. And now he's going to take all this out on Connie to some extent, but mostly Dennis. So there in the public interrogation room, Dennis sat at a small table next to the police officer investigator. Dennis said he went to see his father July 6th in the late afternoon. He said a few words to Maureen and told her that he was there to chat with Dick about their ongoing genealogy project. Dick and Dennis were working on an Oland family genealogy project together. Dennis had parked his car next to his father's car in the parking lot He went up the stairs at 52 Canterbury, but realized that he had forgotten some papers. He drove back to his office, and he got the papers he forgot and returned to 52 Canterbury. He and his father worked on the project together, and it was a great visit. He left a little after six and went to the wharf to see if he could find his children, who were with his ex-wife that day. He didn't see them, so he went home. His current wife was not feeling well. He went to the store to get some dinner. He went back home. Later, he went out again to buy some milk, and he stayed home after that. So that's his story. At this point, police reminded him that his comings and goings are all caught on TV. Uh, Tell us again now what you did. What were you wearing? Dennis said he was wearing khakis, the shoes he has on now, a white dress shirt, and a blue blazer. Police tell him they know that he and his father didn't get along. Dennis then went into many details about his relationship with his father, saying that his father was a great man who achieved a lot and was very cruel and hard to get along with, but that he got along fine with him because he just didn't push back. That's probably why his father targeted him. Right. Dennis got into some detail about money. He relayed that although his father was very aggressive in manners of money and business, his father had just bailed him out of a nasty and expensive divorce. In order to pay the divorce settlement, Dennis would have to sell his home, which was the Oland family estate that had been built in 1930s. Dick had extended a half-million-dollar favor to Dennis that would allow him to keep his home and settle his divorce. The loan principal of $500,000 would only need to be paid back out of the family estate when both his parents were gone. That's a cool deal. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm, this is probably why I don't have money, but if I had 35 million in my estate, I wouldn't float a loan to my kids. I would just buy the house outright. Say, here it is. (laughs) You know? Oh, yeah. It's an interesting family dynamics here. Well, it's going to get worse, Caroline. So, you know, he'd owe 500000 once his parents were dead. He would owe that to his brother and sister, his brother, his, yeah. his brother. Yeah, no, his, his two ch- daughters and the son. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, except. That's how we see, you know, except A-hole. Remember A-hole? <laughs> there was interest due each month from Dennis oh to Dick. A $1,600 bill all to his father every month until some future time when the debt would be repaid after the father and the mother's death. I mean, this is a burden. This is not wealth. But I don't know. This is strange to me. 
So, I mean, uh, you know, I'm just kind of stupefied at how this rich man is acting. Yeah, me also. At some point, you know, uh, Dennis asked, asked to go home. I mean, you know, he wanted to go home. Uh, well, and I'm curious because in Canada, I've been seeing a couple other things on some other shows I've watched about, it sounds like there's some questionable tactics in maybe some parts of Canada, maybe all of Canada. I don't know how it works. Um, but in terms of eliciting um, confessions, like I think there have been some ones I've seen where I'm like, yeah, that's too far. But there's some amount of fictitious kind of lying in, that goes on that I think is necessary. But then there's others that's just outright lying in that seems more entrappy to me. So, I, you know, it is interesting to me, these Canadian. <laughs> entrappy. Yes, they were trying to get, remember, they were trying to get that uh confession yes that's what they and so they were pushing all of his buttons like within That's five a, minutes of finding the crime scene which i think is kind of fast too i mean i get that a family I mean, yeah was, this is all happening the day of the murder yeah that they just, found the body i mean it seems quick and crazy well all i can say is that dennis you know at some point said something to the effect of you know i just i want to leave now i want to go home yeah. And I guess maybe in Canada, when the suspect declares themselves represented by counsel, which he did at also at some point, the interview isn't isn't over the way it likely would be in the United States. Not likely. It, it should be. Yeah. And if it doesn't, you're not going to be able to try that person because everything that you obtained in that interview is not going to be allowed in by the judge. Yeah. But anyway, eventually he was released from the police department. And I really don't understand why he stayed that long. Uh, it would be a week, Caroline, before a search warrant was issued for his home. So if they thought he was the killer, how come they weren't over there with a search warrant while he was in the police office? Well, that's a good point, because I don't know how they do it in Canada. But here, you have to convince a judge. You have to get a judge to sign something that says he agrees with your probable cause. And you have to have that probable cause. And remember, he's living in the house that he got a $500,000 loan on, but he's pay, having to pay $1,600 a month on interest to his dad. Cool. Anyway, um, uh, I don't understand why he stayed as long as he did, but he did. On July 14th, one week after the murder, 20 police officers. What? What? <laughs> 20? That was like I wouldn't all even of them? think there'd be 20 <laughs> police officers. These are the same trapesers through the crime scene. Acting on a warrant swooped in on Dennis Olin's home. Police spent eight hours combing the house and grounds and left with four large garbage bags, several cardboard boxes, some paper bags, seizing a total of 57 different items. Legal papers, bank statements, a purple purse with a note inside, bedding, clothing, even a dryer lint collector. What? How are you going to dry your clothes after that? <laughs> Later, they executed search warrants on Dennis's Wood Gundy office, which was the financial concern Dennis worked at. They also searched a Loki, which is a yacht owned by Dennis's second wife, Lisa, and at the Royal Kinabacasas Yacht Club, to which the Olin family and much of the city's elite belonged. So they're looking at the yacht, they're looking at the house, they're looking at the grounds. Did police 
look into Dick's many business dealings. Maybe one of the many someones who hated Dick, the the a-hole, killed him in revenge. Nope, police didn't look there. They believe that Dennis did it, and that's the only thing they ever looked at. Well, what I about mean, the, how about... Oh, I was just going to say, what about the... Yeah, I think it's what you're thinking. The mistress who called to let Connie know her husband's, like, murdered. Oh, I hate those people. <laughs> Creepy Diana. Yes. Yeah, her husband could have killed him, but they didn't even talk to him. How about sailing people who might be wrangled by Dick or pissed that he always was the winner? Uh, no. And on and on and on. They only looked at Dennis. Mm. Dennis was the last known person to see his father. And let's face it, he was low hanging fruit. He owed his family money. He perhaps buckled under the pressure of his father's constant reminding him of his various failings. Mm. He was broke. His checks to his father's loan of $1,600 had recently bounced. He owned, um, uh, he owed four thousand a month in child support. He was living on bank loans, credit cards, and he wasn't pulling in clients where he worked as a financial advisor. Um, that's kind of a huge irony. Anyway, police theorized that Dennis asked his father for more money, and he said no. And Dennis beat him about the head with a hammer until he was dead. And then he went shopping, and he got milk, and later he went to bed. That was their theory. Wow. Then there's the camera footage, Caroline. Dennis was wearing a brown jacket, not a Navy one. And police found Richard's DNA, Dick's DNA in four small places on the jacket. Dennis was seen oddly circling the building where his father's office was before finally parking and then leaving and then returning, but parking on the street. They thought that was weird. And yet he was not covered in blood. In any of these camera shots. So how could he have bludgeoned his father in a small space and not be covered in blood and brains? How could that be? Yeah. The police were mom for a very long time. Because, you know, what have they got to say? They're out lollygagging and looking at other crime scenes, using other people's toilets. Uh, By very long, I mean two years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I, you know... I don't know what they were doing. And remember, 20 of them went to his house. So this is a big police force for such a tiny little village. Two long years of Dennis and his family trying to carry on. Dennis's mother, Connie, and his sisters, his uncle Derek, and many of Dennis's friends and associates were on his side without reserve. They, you know, they just did not think that Dennis would do such a thing. And there's no evidence. Right. But. When will the waiting ever end? And will when will the real killer ever be brought to justice? Well, if it's not Dennis, they're never going to be brought to justice right. because they're not looking for anybody else. And then Dennis Olin was charged with second-degree murder in November of 2013, more than two and a half years after the killing of Dick Olin, his father. Dennis's trial for a second-degree murder would not commence until October 2015. I would not want to be impaneled on that jury. Would you, Caroline? No, not at all. I Like you said in the beginning, this is a very difficult case. And I think it's the lack of investigative, you know, weighty evidence that we we really don't know. There are a lot of possibilities here. A lot. 
And I don't that know that never Dennis is. At. Yeah, I don't know that Dennis is the number one for me, at least. There was testimony about the time of the murder, and it was in question a bit and very pivotal. The business, uh, the building, pardon me, at 52 Canterbury was owned by John Ainsworth and Anthony Shaw, and they were downstairs in the printing shop when they believed they heard Richard Olin being murdered. Great. I mean, you know, an ear witness is good, but the time was unclear. John Ainsworth's recollection of when they heard the thumping noises coming from Richard Olin's office supports the Crown's case, while Anthony Shaw's time estimate supports the defense. Ainsworth says it was sometime between 6 and 8 p.m. on July 6, 2011. Shaw said it was around 7.30 to 7.45. Earlier in the trial, the jury was shown a timestamp security video of Dennis Olin shopping at Cochran's Country Market at 7.38 p.m. that night. So if Shaw is right about the noises in Dick's office, Dennis could not possibly be the killer. If Ainsworth is right, Dennis could have been the killer. The prosecution's biggest piece of evidence was the brown jacket with the tiny blood drops on it matching Dick's blood. Bloodstain experts testified that it was impossible to say whether the tiny bloodstains found on Dennis Olin's brown sports jacket are connected to his father, Richard Olin's murder, because they couldn't date the blood. Oh, interesting. There was no way to say how the blood got on the jacket or how long it had been there. And Dennis and his father once co-mingled their jackets during a home remodel Dennis was undergoing. Forensic tests of Dennis Olin's car, shoes, and reusable grocery bag he reportedly had with him when he last visited his father at his St. John's office all came back negative for blood. Okay, I, I don't think he did it if the, all of this is true. Yeah, I agreed. Because of all the no blood, blood you have on you, you can't get clean from a 40 bludgeoning wax. You no. know. Yeah. No. No blood was found on the six pairs of shoes seized from Dennis Olin, including the ones he appears to be wearing in a surveillance video introduced by police. It was revealed that police had surveilled Dennis Olin from the time he left the police department interrogation, July 7, 2011, and continued that surveillance until they searched his home and the yacht club and Dennis's boat. And at no time did he wash his car, the VW Golf he was driving the day he visited his father, driving around the building, parking, coming back, leaving, coming back, parking, and going into 52 Canterbury. They didn't see him throw anything away or in any way act like he had anything to hide or cover up. Uh, yeah, I'm confused why he's they're coming after him. I'm confused how this got to trial, frankly. <laughs> Me too. Dennis was in dire financial situation at the time of the killing. Then there was the crispy client-banker relationship Dick had with his son, Dennis. Dennis had a hard time paying his father back monthly for the loan on the house that Dick had given him during Dennis's divorce. Apparently, Dennis had handed his father a bunch of post-dated interest checks, $1,600 checks, not, you know, each one $1,600 in bunches to his father, and the last check out of the latest bunch had bounced, and Dennis had not made a May, June, or July payment. Then there was the sad and weird shocker to the community that Dick Olin, who was worth 37 or so million dollars at the time of his death, engaged in what they called parsimonious dealings with his own wife 
of 47 years, Connie. He gave her, okay, this part's going to piss me off. He gave her $2,000. He gave her $2,000 a month to run everything in the household, providing she gave him receipts and a report at the end of each month. No report, no receipt, no loan, which is what he called it for the next $2,000. That's an employment relationship. That's not a marriage. That is an employment personal assistant relationship. Oh, I know. Poor Connie. It's horrible. I'm so sorry, Connie. I am too. And even though Dennis Olin was then working for Wood Gundy, he was either not pulling in enough, was not spent, he was spending too much to cover the interest payments, and his post divorce monthly $4,233 in child spousal support. At the time of the trial, Dennis was said to be spending about $17,000 over his income monthly. Oh my gosh. Oh my God. I don't know. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) Just just so I can see why they're saying, you know, it was money. But no, just four months before the killing, the prosecutor said Dennis Olin, having not secured the loan from his father against his property, as he was supposed to have done, had used up one thousand. Pardon me. I can't name these big numbers, Caroline. I can't read them. $155,000 of a $163,000 line of credit for his house. And he was maxed out to the tune of $32,000 on his primary credit card, and he was overdrawn at the bank, that poor man. And as far as money goes, everyone in the Olin family knew that if Dick Olin died before Connie, then she would inherit everything outright. So an inheritance was not a motive for Dennis. Yeah. The trial lasted 41 weekdays. Jeez. Oh, wow. Just weekdays? Yeah. So it was much 41. longer than so Because yeah. weekends are in there before you get to the I next know. weekday. <laughs> so that's like eight. I can't do math. The jury came back into court after deliberations, and Dennis stood to hear the verdict guilty of second-degree murder of his father. I don't get it. <laughs> I don't even get that. Based on what? I don't get it. <laughs> Their guilty verdict delivered on the morning of the 19th of December provoked sobs and cries of protest from members of the Olin family in the courtroom, and Dennis wailed uncontrollably in the accused box. Second-degree murder comes with an automatic life sentence, though the jury recommended parole after a minimum 10 years, which the court eventually heeded. People in St. John thought that Dennis was probably guilty of murdering his father, but they also thought that he should have been acquitted due to police bungling and lack of real evidence. But Caroline, Dennis went to a maximum security prison. And, you know, he's got that baby face, and he comes down, He comes from a wealthy family. So I'm worried about him in prison. Well, I, mean, I agree. I see him as a bit of a passive person. So, oh, he's not a bit of a passive person. Yeah, not <laughs> passive people aren't going to make it in prison. <laughs> I just assume, no. I don't know. I've never been there, but if I was that much in debt, I mean, I first of all, I would never be able to get that much credit. <laughs> but if I was, but if I was, if I was up to my eyeballs, owing people money I couldn't pay back, yeah, I could not handle that kind of stress. Me neither, because I'm not a passive person. Me neither. 
I, well, I goal-oriented, man. I mean, you know, if I'm not reaching my goals, I am just really a mess. So, I mean, but a passive person, I can see how a passive person like Dennis will like be kind of laissez-faire about, uh, I owe money. You know, I'm sure I'll figure yeah. it out. Well, there's you a know, point where so, you're just kind of like, well, you know, you whatever. have to do that radical acceptance thing. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. I like it. I need to work on being able to do radical acceptance. I know, me too. I do actually do some of that these days. Some but anyway. It. Takes a while, though, sometimes. So I'm worried about him in prison, but I'm thinking, well, they're in Canada, so maybe they're nicer up there. I don't know. I don't... Olin's appeal of his conviction was heard by the New Brunswick Court of Appeal in October 2016. Citing errors in the trial judge's instructions to the jury, the court overturned the conviction and ordered a new trial. Dennis Olin was freed on bail at this time after 10 months in prison as a man who savagely bludgeoned his father to death. A new trial for Dennis Olin would happen in November of 2018. And in Dennis's second trial, his attorney had won the big first argument that Dennis would face a bench trial and not a jury trial, which meant the judge alone would hear the evidence and reach a verdict. And this was a huge big deal for Dennis and his legal team. Dennis's lawyers presented evidence that the St. James police had called potential jurors ahead of the trial to screen them. Isn't that illegal? <laughs> In other words, they were jury picking, which is not legal. Yeah. Thus, there would be a bench trial. Dennis told the judge that the notion he would even or ever brutally bludgeoned his father to death is just absolutely ridiculous. I'm just, I'm just not that kind of monster, he told the judge, which of course, because I have a dark mind, Caroline, uh, I'm thinking, okay, well, what kind of a monster are you? <laughs> He's an apathetic monster. <laughs> Those aren't so bad. <laughs> My guess is the judge and others were thinking the same dark thought that I did. Yeah. But anyway. For sure. I would never do that to my dad or any other person. That was Dennis's heartfelt pronouncement. He gave more detail this go around what the three trips to his father's office were all about, more detail about the materials he was taking to and from his father's office in a red a reusable grocery bag. There was a lot of evidence about Dennis's earnings and expenditures over the years. He was used to living boom to bust, boom to bust, boom to bust. The evidence would show. So none of this had come into the first trial oh, wow. yeah. because probably because they didn't try that hard, probably because they thought I didn't kill my dad. Yeah, that's true. I didn't true. kill him, they so thought, they're not going to. Yeah, this evidence yeah. isn't enough. Whereas, no. yeah, this evidence is actually the counter. You know, it's like the evidence that they should have brought first time to say, yeah, see how it's not true. <laughs> uh, he he testified that that he really was not worried about the market turning around and he was working to bring in more book of business at the time of his father's death. And why would he get up there, Caroline, uh, and and take his take up his own defense in this second trial because that's you know very very risky i want to clear my name he told the judge in reality he was saying that to the community during a bench trial there were folks in the gallery including the press i think it is important for people to hear from my own voice that i did not kill my father yeah now you know i have a big booming voice sometimes and i would be if i were falsely accused i'd be screaming and you know, I would just be doing everything I could. I'd be beating my chest. He didn't deliver that way, yeah. but the way he delivered it 
looking in everyone's eyes, looking in the judge's eyes and saying in his own manner, I did not kill my father. I did not do this. I did not do this. I think Dennis was trying to undo the damage of his first trial when the entire case against him was premised on the belief that he had just snapped, which is what the prosecutor had been saying. That is why the prosecution asked for the charge of murder, too. They didn't think it was premeditated. They thought it was rage-fueled. The police were on the defensive during the second trial. The courts had ruled that in this trial, the public could see the four hours of accusatory and tormenting interrogation by police right after Dennis had found out that his father had been killed. It was a horrible assault on Dennis with absolutely no foundation. And that is the reason that I was able to look at the entire three hours of interrogation of Dennis Olin because it was entered into the court. And now it is public. So I was able to watch it. Oh, that's so cool. Because I, you know, I am interested in investigative, like this interview, the interview, the science around the interview process and the interrogation process. That's what I'm looking for. Because I think this is, this is where that fine line gets real squishy, you know, but. Guess what, Caroline? The defense played that entire three hour tape to the court. In the second trial. Oh, no way. Wow. Not a good look for the prosecution, which had built their entire case on what the police had discovered during their investigation. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, (laughs) and there was another problem for the prosecution. An inquiry had been ordered about the investigation. There was an internal cover-up of the looky-loo police force trampling over the scene while the crime scene investigators were still at work. We already talked about some of the major gaffes, and I I admit I probably uh, ridiculed them a little overly, but I did. But anyway, not wearing protective equipment and multi-police officers and investigators using the crime scene office bathroom for two days before anyone thought about testing forensics. Another big issue was the fact that police did not check for evidence or forensics, such as blood and or fingerprints, at the back door of 52 Canterbury. They didn't even go to the back door. The back door was mere steps from the murder scene, whereas the front door required descending a long, dark, narrow set of stairs that were quite severe in their angle. Wow, so they didn't even... We don't know if there were ever any fingerprints or evidence to pull from that door or that area, well, that would piss me off. If I was a judge, I would have looked for opportunities to sanction that entire force. (laughs) Cause that's pretty. It only made sense that the murderer would have exited that back door, Caroline, but it wasn't even part of the murder scene, according to the way police handled it or failed to. The phone was a big issue in the first trial. And that issue was somewhat diluted in the retrial. Here's what happened during the murder of Dick Olin. The killer took only his cell phone from the scene, leaving items of value at the scene, such as Rolex and Dick's wallet. When police tracked the stolen cell phone, it pinged off a cell tower near a waterside park area, which was the same area Dennis had gone right after he left his father's office. Remember, Dennis was hoping to catch a glimpse of his kids. Although the stolen phone was never located, prosecutors painted the picture in the first trial that it was strong cell tower evidence that Dick's stolen cell phone was linked to Dennis's whereabouts after he left his father's office. 
and that is strong evidence. I can kind of sort of see yeah. well, it's how that first jury looked at that. But we are what? What? <laughs> it's a big but. <laughs> Dennis has a big but between the two trials, Dennis's attorney had discovered that the particular cell tower that pinged both Dennis's phone and his murdered father's stolen phone at the same time was what is known as a multi-directional tower. It had a much, much wider area of coverage and could report two phones being in the quote-unquote same place when actuality the two phones could be separated by miles. So is that the triangulation issue? Because they're do- I, using I don't math know. to do this. I mean, it's a probabilities thing. So I think there's a formula by which they say, okay, here's the tower, here's the ping. Well, I didn't know that there were some towers that covered small areas and some t- uh, towers that covered large areas. And this was probably so long ago, 22 years ago, this was probably so long ago that maybe there weren't as many towers. Right. And so uh, it wasn't as uh, keen a science as it is now. Yeah, interesting. It was possible that Dennis, with his own phone, was at the Waterside Park, and Dennis, Dick's phone was in St. James, where the murder took place. Yeah. An interesting aspect of the bench trial in Canada is that judge must articulate every consideration the judge weighed by making his verdict, his or her. The judge wrote 146 pages of what he was thinking and how he was weighing all the evidence and testimony. And I have taken that 146 pages and whittled it down to the biggies to tell this story. He rejected the idea that Dennis murdered his father over his mistress or the money, although he did acknowledge that Dennis's financial position at the time was pretty bleak. (laughs) I like the word bleak. The bleak house of Moosehead. (laughs) He believed the tiny specks of blood found on Dennis's brown jacket actually favored the defense. Whoever committed the murder would have been covered in blood. Also, Dennis was under the surveillance and never went to the dry cleaners himself. If he was hiding something, he would have taken the dry cleaning tag off the jacket when it returned from cleaning. So, I mean, you know, he, he, there was a, there was a dry cleaning tag on the coat. Oh, okay. And we if had that had it was, cleaned. if the whole thing, well, they don't know when it was cleaned. What oh. is it cleaned before? I mean, you know, they just know that. He just didn't even take the tag off. Oh, he's no, living it was like just, that. It was, a, okay. it was a coat with a tag, a dry cleaning tag on it. Yeah. Nobody knew when it had been cleaned. Oh, yeah. So that favors the, and they never saw him going to the cleaners when he was under surveillance. The judge believed that Ainsworth's original ear witness statement of the thumping noises were heard in Dick Olin's office between 7.30 and 7.45, putting Dennis out of the frame. At the first trial, Ainsworth, Ainsworth had changed his testimony to between 6.30 and 8. So the judge went with Ainsworth's first statement right after the crime. I would too. Those are typically, aren't those supposed to be the best ones? Because yes. our brains do Contemporaneous them. utterances yeah. are much more valuable than re- a later retelling. Yeah. So that's what happened there. The judge said that that there are frailties in Dennis's defense. For example, he was the last person known to have seen his father alive. It was very possible he went to the waterfront park not to see his children, but to dispose of the phone. We will just never know, said the judge. The Crown had not satisfied their burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and the verdict of not guilty of second-degree murder came down. 
not guilty. Yeah. And so I will say it. But then after Dennis's Olin was returned to his loving and supportive family, an innocent man on July 19th, 2019, I am sure there was jubilation, jubilation. He was so happy, I'm sure. But, big but, here comes another big but, Caroline. Uh-oh. Less than a year after New Brunswick businessman Dennis Olin was found not guilty of killing his multimillionaire father, Olin's wife, his current wife, applied for a restraining order alleging her husband was prone to outbursts, violent outbursts. It's getting worse because he is less and less in control, she said. He's not getting a reaction from me and he can't handle it. And I'm not safe in my own house, she says. Andrick Olin said her husband hasn't lived in the marital home in Rothsey, New Brunswick, since February 2020. But in but Andrick Olin alleges her husband entered the home without warning on June seventh, twenty twenty, and proceeded to place her personal items on the driveway. I'm sorry, oh, that's I don't know sad. this lady. Uh, if she's nice, I'm sorry. If you're not nice, I'm not sorry. <laughs> this is so ugly, and it's just not possible to know if this is new behavior or a true breakdown or. I mean, the court eventually asked for more evidence of all this behavior, and then the charges were dropped. See, so maybe this lady is just gold digging. I don't know. Well, not only that, I don't even blame any of the parties here. I think that marriages and and uh, maybe romantic relationships in general that are committed ones, they can get very ugly. You're talking about people's base emotional vulnerabilities sure, that they've attached to another person, and there's a lot of trust in there. And so, yeah, I mean, if you've got, you know, he wants to fight in this couple, she doesn't want to fight, that's going to make him more mad. You know, I don't know what went on in their relationship, but I know that relationships get weird because I one time had a Facebook and they got weird on Facebook in front of all of us. Like people, when you hit a wall and you wanted a reaction out of this person you're vulnerable with and they don't, they don't want to play the game anymore, sometimes you do take it public. Because you're just wanting anything, you know, maybe or so I don't know. I don't I don't want to speak to this and say anything was true or untrue. I just know that relationships between humans get messy. I all I can say is I I uh can resonate with putting somebody's clothes out onto the driveway and I'll just <laughs> leave it at that. <laughs> I generally think women do that more than men do. Yeah. So first of all, some I, okay, I'm just going to leave it at that, just yeah. like I was going to say. <laughs> the whole thing, this whole shittery culminated <laughs> in the highly ironic selling off of the family home of Dennis Oland, oh, the very house his father had loaned Dennis a half million dollars to keep in the family home, the loan that many think prompted the killing. Yeah. They had to sell it off. Wow. The latest news on Dennis Oland, Caroline, to be found in print, is that he is living with his mom. He's broke. Now, what we mean by broke is that he's living with his mom, who is a multi, multi-millionaire. Yeah. Who now has, you know, skills of being able to live on $2,000 a month. Perhaps he is taking care of her in their home in Rothsay and helps her get, you know, buy, uh, uh, get around. She's in her 80s now. Yeah. Perhaps she's enjoying her grandchildren or even great-grandchildren living with her as well. 
I don't know. I, I think it's weird. Why do I always try to visualize a peaceful ending? Because that's what we want. Why do I want that so bad? We just want to manifest all the good stuff. And this is sad. It's a, There's a lot of sad dynamics popping up from the very start. PW's choice to elect the second son as the leader all the way to this. I'm selling off the family home that prompted just this savage time in my life. It's just sad. You know, Dennis's mama always loved him so much. Yeah. And he loves his mama. Yeah. So when I hear that he's living in her home and that is his uh, raison d'etre. Yeah. Yes. That is his reason for living. Yeah. That makes me so happy. And I think that that is where he will find his most authentic self. Yeah. A doted on who is doting on. Yeah. Well, you know, both... just a mutual doting on society there yeah. in that house in Roth. And they're both free. You know, these are two people that were under a thumb. They were definitely under a thumb. Dennis may not have even wanted that house, but his dad's forcing this loan situation on him. We just don't know. And what's worse is we don't actually even have a clue as to who might have actually killed Dick. Because I agree. I don't think it was Dennis. No. I, d I don't think that at all. I just think maybe it was Connie. I don't know because maybe we don't have Connie. the evidence. <laughs> maybe it was somebody on her behalf. Right. We just don't. Maybe it was a rando robbery of a, a crazed drug addict. We don't know and we'll never know because the evidence no. was lost. So it's this right. is a hard story, Mama. It is. And I'm just going to give it that happy little uh, rainbow ending. And I'm going to say that today's episode called Moose Head Down, was written and narrated by Bridget and Caroline. Produced by Andy. Our research is solely based on public domain documents, including legal documents, articles, and books about our subject. Episodes are aired every other week. If you like us, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell your friends about us in person and by social media. All of these actions help new listeners find us. And most of all, thank you. We really appreciate our listeners very much. And one other thing, don't forget to live and let live. All right, bye, Caroline. Bye-bye.